Good morning, church. Good morning. If you are a regular attender, welcome back. If you're listening online or watching online, welcome. If you're a visitor, we are so glad that you are here. If you're watching online or if you're a visitor, you might not know that today I have been paid the biggest compliment I have ever been paid. If you look at your bulletin, it says the name of the man preaching this morning is a man named Mike Kellett. And when I'm confused with the master pastor, it's a big deal, all right? Make sure you, I, you tell him I said that. I am so very excited to get into this text this morning. We're in the book of Galatians. In the book of Galatians, the Apostle Paul admonishes us that there is one way to freedom and that the pathway to freedom is through the Lord, the resurrected King, our Savior, Jesus Christ. There's a lot to discuss, and so I'm going to give you some background before we get into the heart of the text, and then we are going to break down, our goal this morning is to break down and dissect the teaching of chapter 1. It, I'm, I'm breaking it up into two sections. First, the Apostle Paul gives us his declaration. He makes a few statements that are imperative to understanding the nature of this particular text and that are helpful to us in understanding how we are redeemed and also should live. The second half of that is his demonstration. By his response to the gospel, he demonstrates for us a transformed life, one that we are called to live out. So the history of this text, uh, first, I'm, I'm a guy who says that uh, the book of Galatians was written following the first missionary journey, but before the Council of Jerusalem. So I need you to stick with me here because this is really important context for our text. The Apostle Paul Barnabas goes to a, a place called Tarsus looking for Saul. Paul which Saul is his Jewish name, Paul is his Roman name, and Barnabas end up in a place called Antioch. Antioch is Paul's home base for his missionary endeavor. The first missionary, he goes, missionary journey he goes to is through the kingdom of southern Galatia and the island of Cyprus. So he and Barnabas and John Mark first go to Cyprus, then they go to city in Antioch in southern Galatia. John Mark actually deserts Barnabas and Paul. Paul and Barnabas then go from city in Antioch to a place called Iconium in Acts 14. And then they go to a place called Lystra. And Paul and Barnabas are doing incredible things in Lystra. They're healing people. They're setting captives free. The power of their ministry is obvious. And so the people in Lystra actually start to call them gods. They say, no, wait a second, that's not us, but we know who is. At that moment in time, a group of people called the Judaizers, and I'm going to explain more about that in just a minute, attack Paul and Silas. They actually stone Paul in Acts 14. They drag him outside the city and they leave him for dead. The disciples gather around him. My conjecture is they start praying, and all of a sudden, Paul gets up. At that moment, he doesn't run and hide. He goes back into Lystra. From there, he goes on to his next stop in that first missionary journey, Derby, back to Lystra, back to Iconium, back to city in Antioch, back through uh, Cyprus to Syria in Antioch. So there's your quick history. Why do I think Galatians was written directly after that? Because in Acts 15, something interesting is recorded in Scripture, and this is a very pivotal moment 
for the early church. You need to commit this to memory. Acts chapter 15. The Jerusalem church meets to decide if Gentile Christians, this is people who are not Jewish, but that believe that Jesus Christ is the Son of God, if Gentile Christians have to convert to Judaism to be saved. That happens in Acts chapter 15. This is called the Jerusalem Council. The three elders of the church in Jerusalem are Peter, James, and John. The reason I think Galatians was written right before that is A, because of the discontent with the Jewish Christians against the teaching of Paul as found in Acts 14, which is his first missionary journey. And second, because he writes this to say clearly that salvation is through faith in the Son of God, not by works of the law. You don't have to convert to the law or obey Moses to receive the promise that God gave to Abraham about being his sons and daughters. And we're going to see these ideas compared and contrasted throughout this book. It's Moses, the lordship of Moses versus the lordship of Jesus Christ. It's law versus grace. It's flesh versus spirit. And Paul's going to make clear in his conclusion in Galatians 6, whatever you sow into is what you're going to reap out of. If it's to the flesh, if it's to Moses, if it's to the law, you're going to reap corruption and death. If it's to the Lord Jesus Christ and to the Spirit, and if it's grace, you are going to reap life and blessings. And so I think he sits down and pins this to the Galatian churches just before the council in Jerusalem meets to decide, does somebody have to convert to Judaism to be a Christian? And ultimately they decide that, that you don't. That the gospel of grace taught by the Lord Jesus Christ is the one true gospel. And we live in a time where people are trying to corrupt the truth of God's word. And we have got to stand on its promises and we have to teach grace alone through faith and we get immersed into Christ at the point in time of our baptism and it is through that and that alone that we become Christians, not through adherence to the Judaism law, the Mosaic law. All right, now that i put everybody to sleep with the history of this writing, let's get started. The first thing that happens in chapter 1 is Paul makes a declaration. The first statement he declares is a statement of apostleship. I've got this on the screens here. It's from Galatians chapter 1, verses 1 and 2. I'll read to you. Paul, an apostle, sent not from men nor by man, but by Jesus Christ and God the Father, who raised him from the dead, and all the brothers and sisters with me, to the churches in Galatia. There are three things that he makes clear from this first passage in Galatians 1. The first thing is he wants us to know who sent him on his journey. The only person that can grant apostolic authority is the Lord Jesus Christ. And Paul says, I have been sent, not from men nor by a man, but by the Lord Jesus Christ himself and the Father who raised him from the dead. Not only is he sent by Jesus Christ but he's sent by the Lord Jesus who was raised from the dead. There are lots of things mentioned in Galatians. Liberty is mentioned 11 times in this letter. The name Christ occurs 43 times. Law is referred to 31 times. The flesh, 18 times. The spirit is mentioned 15 times. Faith occurs 22 times. The promise 
And all words like that occur ten times, and the words bondage or any of its kindred words occur eleven times. This is the only time Paul mentions the resurrection of our Lord Jesus Christ, and it should be the only time he has to because he starts with the power of a resurrected Lord. And this is the heart of the gospel and is also no doubt why he has chosen to start with the mention of the resurrection of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. For without the resurrection we have nothing and through the resurrection of our Lord Jesus Christ we have everything, even life eternal. And it's there Paul wants to state not just his sending but also his significance. The truth is that the death and resurrection of our Lord Jesus Christ effectively renders Judaism obsolete. The last thing he mentions here in this opening are his subjects. His statement of apostleship is directed toward a particular group of people. Paul is writing this letter to the churches in Galatia, the first churches he planted, and the first to experience persecution. And ironically enough, it was persecution from within. This compels him ultimately to make a statement of acknowledgement. Starting in verse 3, he puts it like this. Grace and peace to you from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ who gave himself for our sins to rescue us from the present evil age according to the will of our God and Father, to whom be the glory forever and ever. Amen. Here the Apostle Paul is contrasting the origin of rest based on what the Lord Jesus Christ indicated and the origin of rest based on the Mosaic Law. What the Judaizers would have liked to have propagated is that it is only in adherence to the Mosaic Law that we can experience true peace and rest. The Apostle Paul says, absolutely not. Grace and peace to you come to you from God our Father and from the Lord Jesus Christ. And what's the mechanism of that grace and peace arriving in our lives? He says clearly in verse 4, it's because he gave himself for our sins and he rescued us from this present evil age. And that's the function of the Lord Jesus Christ's sacrifice on the cross. It's not only for your rest, it's also for your rescue. The Apostle Paul was a man who was absolutely bound in his old life. So much so he persecuted those who would have opposed his way of living and his method of teaching. Going so far as to even potentially put to death anyone who opposed his teaching and living. The Apostle Paul knew what it was like to live in a depraved, evil state. And after he converted and was converted by the Lord Jesus Christ on the Damascus Road, he fully appreciated that grace brand new. And no doubt he wanted to remind the Galatian churches, grace and peace are from God the Father. They're not from the Mosaic Law. It's only through the resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ that we experience hope and life. Not from the legalistic set of rules codified in the Talmud and in the Mosaic writings. What else does he say? He goes on from there, not just to state the origin of rest or rescue, but he makes a statement of astonishment. I'm going to pick up in verse 6 here. I'm astonished that you are so quickly deserting the one who called you to live in the grace of Christ and are turning to a different gospel, which is really no gospel at all. 
It is unimaginable to Paul that those churches who he, that he had planted in Iconium, in Lystra, in Derbe, in City and Antioch, and on Cyprus, that they could have experienced the transformational power of the Holy Spirit and become entangled again in the affairs of the old life. And who would have known better about that old life than the Apostle Paul who was so deeply therein entangled? But this is a delicate time for a delicate group of people. It was completely countercultural to teach there is a way to God through a man named Jesus Christ, not from the teachings handed down through Moses in the Torah. I, I was listening to the radio earlier this week, and a well-known preacher said there's been a study released in the last couple of years. And the researchers were interested in, in learning whether or not men who were behind the pulpit on Sunday, believed in the inerrancy and infallibility of God's Word. In mainstream Protestant denominations, ministers who were 50 years old and older said that they believed the inerrancy and infallibility of God's Word 44 times out of 100 times. That means 66 men out of 100 are standing preaching God's Word and they don't even believe in its inerrancy and in its infallibility. Ministers under the age of 30 are about half that. How is it that men can read God's truth and speak God's word to God's people and not even value it as inerrant and infallible? The same way they're doing that is the same way that the Galatian Christians were being slowly led back into Judaism because there was a culture who said, your way is not the best way. You have to do it our way to really do it correctly. And the early Christians were slowly and steadily starting to yield and submit themselves to that cultural pressure. And unfortunately, in the Western church, so many, so many men are willing to stand up in the pulpit and preach God's truth and still yield to the way the culture says we should live life. In our church, we teach that God's word is inerrant and that it is infallible. We teach that there is one right way to God, and that is through His Son, our Lord, Jesus Christ. We teach that God does have a specific plan for marriage, and that's between one man and one woman, and that all lives have a right to life. We, we believe that we know what God's Word teaches and that we've got it right, and we're, we don't apologize for standing up for truth. But imagine these early Christians who were coming up against a culture deeply rooted in tradition. Man, it was so tempting to just go with the flow. And we have absolutely got to be voices for reason and for truth in a culture that very much would like to pull us away in the same way the Judaizers, which again, are Jewish Christians who are teaching non-Jewish Christians that they had to follow all the teachings of the Mosaic Code to be a Christian. In the same way those people were trying to pull away Christians and get them to follow after the old law, so our culture is trying to get Christians to pull away from the teachings of truth contained in God's Word and follow after some other non-gospel, some other method of truth that's absolutely inappropriate. So what's the action? If this is a statement of astonishment, the statement of action is just that. That evidently, Paul says, some people are throwing you into confusion and are trying to pervert the gospel of Christ. 
And you know, we still encounter some of the same kind of teaching today. There are those who would say that Jesus Christ isn't really Lord. And these people call themselves, quote-unquote, Christians or witnesses of God. There are those who would say, we've been given a special revelation by an angel passed down to two men who then developed a whole teaching on that particular revelation given to them by an angel. There's a whole nation, a whole religion of people who are persecuting our brothers and sisters in the Near East that are saying their God is actually God and they have a better understanding of the Lord Jesus than we do. This is still happening in the church today. And we've got to stay familiar with truth and be clear on what the Bible says and claim it as truth and stand staunchly against all those who would attempt to lead us into another gospel. Ultimately, that's what Paul says. His, he makes a statement from action to a statement of anathema. Verse 8, even if we or an angel from heaven should preach a gospel other than the one we preach to you, let them be under God's curse. God's curse, that word right there is anathema in the Greek. As we have already said, so now I say again, if anybody is preaching to you a gospel other than what you accepted, let them be under God's curse, anathema. And in verse 10, he adds some credibility to his statement saying, see, am I now trying to win the approval of human beings or am I trying to win the approval of God? Am I trying to please people? If I were still trying to please people, I would not be a servant of Christ. What does he say about false gospels? He says, church family, if somebody would knock on your door and say, I have received a revelation from an angel, if they should make that statement to you, that you should run and turn from that teaching if it doesn't correspond exactly with the gospel taught to us by the Lord Jesus Christ in the writings of his word. If somebody should knock on your door and deny the teaching of the Lord Jesus Christ or his lordship, his deity, if someone should try and sway you from what you know is biblically good and right and true, you should run from that teaching for that person and that teaching is accursed. This word is only used six times in scripture and it always means cursed from a righteous, holy God who has sent his son to die for your sins, whose wrath will be upon all those who do not confirm the truth of the life lived by our Lord Jesus Christ who made quite clear that he is the way, he is the truth, and he is the life and no one comes to the Father other than through the Lord Jesus Christ. That is our gospel. That's what Paul's telling the Galatian Christians, that it's Jesus and him alone that will lead you into salvation. What does he demonstrate? If those are his declarations, he made a declaration of apostleship. He made a, a statement of acknowledgement, a statement of astonishment, a statement of action, and a statement of anathema. He now demonstrates through his life what happens when someone interfaces with the transforming power of the Lord Jesus Christ. I'm going to pick up in verse 13 about his response to the gospel. For you've heard of my previous way of life in Judaism, how intensely I persecuted the church of God and tried to destroy it. I was advancing in Judaism beyond many of my own age among my people, and I was extremely zealous for the traditions of my father's. 
But when God, who set me apart from my mother's womb, called me by his grace, was pleased to reveal his son in me so that I might preach him among the Gentiles, my immediate response was not to consult any human being. I didn't go up to Jerusalem to see those who were apostles before I was, but I went into Arabia. Later, I returned to Damascus. Then, after 15 days, after three years, I went to Jerusalem to get acquainted with Cephas, which is Peter, and stayed with him 15 days. I saw none of the other apostles, only James, the Lord's brother. I assure you before God that what I am writing to you is no lie. There is a phrase in there that is the crux of his response to the gospel. And the phrase is, the traditions of my fathers. Paul says he was extremely zealous for the traditions of his fathers. There are about 600 laws that, we, that, that you can locate in the Mosaic Law. Some people say they've got it down to a specific number, 613. As Greek Hellenistic thought started to invade Jewish culture, ultimately they developed a hermeneutic. Rather than interpret Scripture in light of Scripture, we're going to interpret Scripture in light of culture, in light of logic, in light of learning, in light of enlightenment. And they ultimately transformed the Torah into a book called the Mishnah, which eventually translated itself into the Talmud. The Talmud is 6,200 pages long today. At about 200 pages per volume, you're talking somewhere around 30 volumes of laws, customs, stories, and teachings obligated to be adhered to under the Mosaic Code. The man who was essentially responsible for taking this a form of Judaism to all the Jewish people was a guy named Elel. He's called Elel the Elder in Jewish history. Elel was passing his mantle down to another man who actually appears in Scripture under the name Gamaliel. This name may sound familiar to you because the Apostle Paul indicates that he trained under Gamaliel. Elel was compared in Jewish culture to Moses. He was as authoritative as Moses. And he was passing the scripture down to Gamaliel, who ultimately was discipling Paul. Paul was the third or fourth guy in power and prestige in the Jewish religion. Imagine what kind of a family Paul had to come from. His parents had their eyes set on the Harvard University of his time, which was to train under Gamaliel. No doubt they raised him strictly in accordance with Jewish law and custom. They also taught him Greek, for we see in other places he was fluent in the Greek language and in the Hebrew language. The Apostle Paul strove and yearned to be a Jew among Jews. In Scripture, we actually have record of him saying, in accordance with the law, I was faultless. But we have to understand the function of the whole Old Testament, and especially the law, to understand Paul's transformation and his response to the gospel. The Old Testament and the law are arrows that point us to Jesus Christ. The law's intent is to reveal to us that we are sin sick outside of God's grace. And only by the grace of God are we able to experience a relationship with God our Father. And it is only through the sacrifice of Jesus Christ that our sin and God's mercy can collide and who better to understand grace than the man who really grasped the gravity of the burden of the old covenant law than the man Paul himself. 
to have trained at those institutions under those men who would have been that versed in the old law. He would have understood very deeply how his own sin was crushing and how the only thing that could have completely transformed his life was the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ. So how is it that Paul goes to Lystra, gets stoned, and then goes back to the city? How is it that he doesn't stop his missionary journey right there? How is it he doesn't run and hide to Syrian Antioch at his home church around everybody that's comfortable? Because he knows the grace of Jesus Christ. He's been transformed. He's been changed from the inside out. And a life transformed is a life that is unshakably committed to living in such a way as to bring other people into the fold of the family of God and introduce them to the life and the liberty and the love that is found in Jesus Christ. The question is not how could he keep on going. The better question is what on earth could have stopped him? He says, I, I had a zealous commitment to follow the traditions of my fathers until I realized their function was to realize my sickness and my need for a savior. After he demonstrates his response to the gospel as one of obedience and missional living, we hear a report of him to the gospel followers. Here's the report, Galatians 1, 22 and 24. I'm going to read to you right here. I was personally unknown to the churches of Judea that are in Christ. They only heard one report. That the man who formerly persecuted us is now preaching the faith he once tried to destroy. And they praised God because of me. That's the demonstration of the life of the Apostle Paul. That a life transformed by the gospel is one in which the old, sinful, sin-sick ways are dead. Those things that you at one point in time were so committed to, you would have given your life to seek them out and to do them. Now you give your life to seeking out and living like Jesus and putting those old desires to death. Paul, who at one point in time would have sought anyone who contradicted his teaching about the Mosaic Law, anyone who uh, taught the Lordship of Jesus Christ, he would have sought to put them to death. And now he would give his life to see that the message of Christ is proclaimed worldwide. That's the kind of transformation that a sin-sick culture is in desperate need of today. I'm convinced that the Galatian churches... We're under a similar amount of persecution to Christian churches are today. Except it's not the Judaizers that are influencing how, how we do church as much as it's our culture. What's the application from this first chapter of Galatians? The first application is that the gospel is central. The gospel is central to everything the Apostle Paul teaches, preaches, and does. It consumes his life. He fully understands the grace of Jesus Christ and he knows that life itself is about nothing less than being an ambassador on mission for our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. What's the second message? What's the second application? It's this. The gospel is not about what we do, but it's about what the Lord Jesus Christ has done. Now that statement is going to fall on your ears one of two ways. 
Potentially, you come from a legalistic background. You're going to hear that statement, and you're going to think, yeah, but Trent, I know I got this right, I know I got this right, I know I got this right, and I know I got this right, and I know there, there are those out there who are not doing it exactly like me, and because I think I'm doing it right, I'm able to rest my head on my pillow at night and sleep a little bit easier. And to you, I would say the same statement over again. It is not about what you do. It is about what the Lord Jesus Christ has done. The second set of ears that that statement falls on is the one who has been sin sick and ravaged by the consequences of sinful behavior. And to you, you hear that statement and you say, Trent, sometimes I feel like there's no way God could ever love me. And to you, I would say, there is no way God could ever love you more. Even while you were dead in your trespasses and sins, even in the times you were in the darkest valleys, even when you lived through the longest, blackest nights, even in those moments when you would have spit on the face of God, even then he loved you and gave his son to redeem you. He never stopped loving you. He never stopped pursuing you. He never stopped calling you to come to him and experience the freedom that he has longed to give you since the day you were born. Who better to teach us that than Paul? A man guilty of murder and slander and disobedience to Jesus Christ. Who fully understood this and he said, I would consider myself chief among sinners. The last application is this. The gospel, friends, compels us to live transformed. What the Apostle Paul is talking to us in this text about is salvation, not sanctification. Salvation is the process by which God makes me righteous. Paul talks about this in his later writings. In 1 Corinthians 5, he says, The Lord Jesus Christ was made to be sin for us who knew no sin so that we might be made the righteousness of God in him. And it is through God imparting unto us the righteousness of Jesus Christ by our faith at the moment we are immersed into Christ in baptism that we experience justification. But the necessary result of a justified, saved life is a life that is sanctified day by day by day. A life that is lived in obedience with the commands of God. Which sounds like a contradiction in terms. Trent, I just, wait a second. Now what you're saying is the old Mosaic laws, and I'm saying that a life transformed, lived, is lived transformationally. I'm getting more conformed into the image of the Lord Jesus Christ day by day by day. That my friends, is the secret to the Christian life. I'm going to pray and we're going to close as we sing a verse of a song following my prayer. If you have a need in your life, maybe you're out there and you would say, Trent, I, I'm sin sick now and I know I have never been clothed in Christ. We want to pray with you. Whatever your need is this morning, let today be a day you take your first steps to a truly freed life. Lord, thank you so much for your word. Thank you so much for Jesus. Thank you so much for a church that is unapologetically committed to speaking truth in a world that would very much like to hear anything but. God, I ask for any life in this room that needs to be transformed, that you would compel them, give them grace, 
prick their heart and empower them to come forward today. Let us live transformed, free lives in a culture that needs to see evidence of both. In Jesus' name, amen.